it is a it's a truly beautiful sight to see you all here to see you worship together to see you pray together to see you declare god's word to um to each other um these are the things that make us a family because christ has united us now as we just sang the strength to follow your commands could never come from me so beautifully chosen was that for this morning's subject um, and please sing that to yourself as we go through this difficult passage. I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter five. We're in a series. <clears throat> we're in a series called Wise Living, and we find this uh, most sufficiently covered in the book of Proverbs. The whole Bible is how to live wisely. The whole Bible is how to know God and how to live according to His Word. However. The Proverbs speak specifically of a life that is devoted to wise living, devoted to, as it says in Proverbs 1, uh, wise dealing for wisdom in justice, equity, and righteousness. So today, we're we're diving into, if, if you've read the Proverbs any number of times, you know what Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 are about. Um... But today we are covering a topic that is going to engender some conversations, hopefully between you and your spouse. Um, I also hope between you and your children. Very few of us who have children have not thought about this in terms of how to be parents in a world completely polluted by sexual immorality. And so I hope that this sermon is for you. Whether or not you are convicted about sin in your own life, I, I hope and I pray that this enlivens in you a desire to speak about it with others, to speak about it with your children, to speak about it with your spouse. Wisdom, as, as we've been talking about, is, is preparation for life lived under God in his kingdom. It's not just about being personally wiser than somebody else, like I'm a more wise dude than somebody else. The, Romans 12, as we covered a few weeks ago, specifically makes a case for saying, don't look at yourself as being wise. Don't consider yourself more than you ought to. And so the point of wisdom is not to say, look how wise I've become. The point of wisdom is to live a wise life for the blessing of others and for the honoring of God. Wise living, we also have to recognize, has totally been fulfilled and accomplished in our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Proverbs was written by a king to future kings, right? He was the king of Israel. And he wrote it to his sons who would go on to be future kings in Israel. Now, he was preparing them to be good kings. And we know that after Solomon wrote this, the kingdom of Israel was actually divided. Uh, Israel broke up. So this didn't really trickle down the way he had hoped into the hearts of his sons. But we recognize as we read through this book that wisdom has been perfectly fulfilled in our king. In Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to his father. He is the wise son, right? He is the good king. He is the obedient son. He is the hard worker. He is all of the wisdom that Proverbs gives us. And so it's for instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, which is the creation and formation of a good society, right? Being a wise person means being a good citizen. And we, as people of the kingdom of God, 
first as citizens of God's kingdom, are also called to be citizens in this world. And how do we create this society? How do we, and I'll actually go on to say, because wisdom is about the creation of a just and fair and righteous society, and because wisdom also begins by fearing God, then we also recognize that wise living actually advances God's reign in the world. It advances his kingdom. It advances his society to live wisely, right? It's not just for you and your family, but it is for the kingdom of God. So specifically, as God's reign advances and evil is displaced and and pushed out, we need to recognize in our society what are the things that God calls us to live wisely and specifically as being a prophetic voice to our culture. And by prophetic voice, I mean being the church, living the way he's called us to so that people are called to God. Everything in our world that sets itself up against God and his reign is idolatry, is idolatry. To put anything as being more important or more significant than God is, is idolatry. And we know in the church we suffer from idolatry, <clears throat> pardon me, as much as other people very often, right? We elevate things, we elevate comfort, we elevate entertainment, we elevate pleasure. We do it all the time in the church. But this morning, we're looking at the idol of sexual expression. Our message this morning is sexual wisdom. Wisdom does not just deal um, with the dusty, lofty ideas of academia, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Wisdom is not just about um, how to navigate difficult difficult philosophical problems detached from real life. Wisdom is just as robustly expressed in your sexuality as it is in your ethics, as it is in your temper, as it is in your financial dealings. Okay, sexual wisdom is critical. And in our case, in our culture, the idolatry of sexual expression and identity is currently destroying lives and destroying our cultural fabric as we speak okay it's 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 sending um, adolescents and, and older people into depression and confusion and physical destruction and so sexual wisdom and i hope i'm going to guard from this is not the preaching of prudish old-fashioned values per se Cultural values hearkening back to a time where sex was more um, behind closed doors. Sex was more not talked about. Sex was more taboo. Not trying to bring us back to an older cultural moment. What sexual wisdom does is to resubmit sex to God. To submit it and to subjugate it to him for his glory. And only in that can we understand what sexual wisdom is. Sexual wisdom, like any other wisdom, is to demonstrate the warnings of foolishness and uphold the beauty of wisdom. Wisdom, as we learned, is refreshment to our bones. To live wisely is to live a a whole life. So let's look at our text in Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding so that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So the first issue in our text this morning when the father is speaking to his son is, hey, the woman, watch out for the woman, the adulterous woman, the fornicating woman. And so the woman is the first focus of our text. The father says to his son, hear my words, son, hear my words. In other words, don't learn this lesson through experience. This is a particular lesson that we need to make sure and help our children not learn from experience. Hear my words. Keep my instruction. Guard discretion so that, and then he brings up the woman. Keep my words so that, look at verse three, four. The reason for keeping my words, the reason for hearing my instruction is because, that word four means because. So keep my words. Hear the words of the wisdom of God because the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. That's one of the ways wisdom is going to lead you through your life. It's going to prepare you for and help you understand the, the forbidden woman. I want to look at a couple things about this forbidden woman. And I'm going to get a little bit more into what, what exactly does that mean? Because right now, maybe a lot of you are thinking, well, who's the forbidden woman? Some of you are women, and so you're thinking, well, why does the forbidden woman threaten me? We're going to talk a bit more about that, but what I want you to see is that wisdom sees the forbidden woman as not just the person who you're not married to, but the forbidden woman is sexual temptation. The forbidden woman is the enticement of sexual immorality. Number one, she's available. She is available. She's indiscreetly enticing. Do you know what? You know what that means? I, I didn't, couldn't think of a better word than indiscreetly. She's not modest. She doesn't clothe herself in the righteousness of God. She's indiscreetly enticing. Her lips are dripping with honey. Her speech is as smooth as oil. She's outright enticing to the senses, to sight and to sound, to touch. She's, a, she's available She's outlandishly attractive, which to me speaks exactly of the contrived images that we see in magazines and videos and movies today, don't we? Contrived, fake beauty, indiscreetly enticing. And he says to his son, now this, this indiscreetly attractive and enticing woman will be there. She will come. It's not something that we can just pretend doesn't exist in the world. He says, be on guard. Your lips may guard knowledge. Her feet go down to death. He's saying, she will come. We can't avoid it. We can't pretend it's not going to happen to us and to our children. We're going to talk a lot more specifically about how that comes. But what we need to recognize is the father says to his son, I know what's out there. And I want to prepare you for that. I don't want to pull the fleece over your eyes and say, well, look, I homeschool or I, I, we go to a good church. Sexual temptation is never going to enter our home or enter the lives of our children. It's not the natural instinct, especially for a young man to run from dripping honey and smooth speech. This is why we need to teach our children ahead of when this comes. It's not our instinct to run. It's not our instinct to free ourselves 
from that temptation. It's our instinct to go in and indulge. And we're going to see that more in our text later. But I want you to see that she's available. Look ahead even into um, chapter 7. Six, 5, 6, and 7 all speak of this. And so I'm going to draw from each of those. In 7 and 11, it says that she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, here she is everywhere, every corner, she lies in wait. How much does that describe our society today? How much does that describe the cultural moment that we're in? At every corner, she's waiting. There's nowhere you can turn and not be exposed to and um, blasted with sexual immorality. Now listen to this. She seizes him and she kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings. This woman is ready. She's available. Sexual temptation is at hand all the time. Don't depend on isolation from it to, to remain pure in sexuality. Every element of sexual temptation seems perfect at the time, doesn't it? She says, I've covered my couch with coverings. I've put perfume on it. She says, my husband is away. He's trading. He's not going to be back for 40 days. We don't have to, you don't even have to sneak out. Everything needed for full indulgence is available. That's the sad reality that we face in 21st century is that everything we need for full sexual indulgence is available. And so the wise instruction from the Father says, keep this in mind ahead of time. Determine right now what your reaction is going to be when you meet sexual temptation. Decide now how you are going to react. Guard against it. So she's available. Number two, she's not on your side. Sexual indulgence and temptation is not on your side. Take a longer look at temptation. It says that her speech is smoother than oil. To the senses, she is so enticing, so inviting. But then what does the father say? In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, which is death. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Friends, sexual indulgence as the world presents it is not on your side. It will not free you. It will not liberate you. And, we, and the world is <clears throat> bombarding those who are outside of the church with this message right now. Your freedom lies in your sexual expression. Your freedom lies in your sexual freedom. Your sexual indulgence. That is what is holding you back from being the person that you are supposed to be. It's your sexual expression. That's idolatry. The Bible says, wisdom says, look harder at sexual temptation. She leads to death. Her path is as bitter as wormwood. It's not a happy place. And she flatters her prey. <clears throat> she said, I've come to find you. I've come to look for you. This is for you. I've been waiting specially for you. Sexual temptation and sexual sin promises you everything and gives you nothing. Gives you nothing. She's not on your side, the forbidden woman. Now let's not pass over the most obvious characteristic of this sexual temptation. She's forbidden. Now this is where we're really going to dive in under the surface and we're going to get a little bit more specific. She's forbidden. So the father says to the son, hey, watch out for the forbidden 
woman. Now, <clears throat> I don't know exactly what society was like at that time. We do know that pagan religions were full of sexual immorality and indulgence. But let's not be quaint uh, that today, because we don't have necessarily the obvious prostitution or um, seduction happening in the flesh, that we don't have just as significant a problem in our society. It's not just the seductress who would grab onto you and say, let's go. You ever read the story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife? And he was in charge. Uh, he was, Potiphar made Joseph in charge of everything, trusted him absolutely, and the wife of Potiphar said, Joseph, sleep with me. And she literally grabbed a hold of him and he had to run. Now, you may be faced with a temptation just like that. That's probably a little bit less frequent and and probable than what we face every day because our seductress is not just in the flesh. Seductresses that face our society and our world and our church today is the model, the Instagram uh, person who is completely indiscreet, the porn star. Anybody who is not your covenant spouse is the forbidden woman. Anybody who is outside your covenant relationship with your husband or wife is the forbidden woman. If you are not married, it's anybody who is not your spouse. Anybody. There is a forbidden realm in sexual indulgence that God has set for our good. Remember, every sexual expression that is outside of marriage is not just extra things that Christians withhold from so that we're not bad. It's that those things are distortions and warped visions of what sexuality is. If you are faithful to your husband or your wife in marriage, you are expressing the highest form of sexuality available to mankind. Did you know that? You're not abstaining from other forms that are better or higher or more exciting. You, in your covenant relationship, are experiencing the highest form of sexual enjoyment. So let's recognize that there is a forbidden realm And in our world today, it is most frequently expressed through pornography. I want to show you the the fool in chapter 7. 7 verse 6 says, For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, who? The forbidden woman. Taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, and at the time of night and darkness, the time of secrecy. And then behold, the woman comes and meets him. I want to ask, what do you see in this man, this young man? A fool. A fool who wanders toward her house, takes the road to her house at the time of secrecy, not during the the light of day, but during the cover of night. Secretly wandering toward sexual indulgence. I have to ask, how close do we wander toward our worst temptations? How close do we flirt with our worst temptations? How horribly ironic is it that our smartphones fit inside our pockets and are most of the time connected to the internet? Friends, we live in a world where you no longer have to seek out secrecy to indulge in in destructive sexual indulgence. You don't have to sneak off somewhere private. 
You don't have to go to a store and buy an embarrassing magazine over the counter. This has been made available in the palm of our hands. We live, in a, we live in a world where the temptation and the danger is a hundredfold what it was 11 years ago. 11 years ago. We're not talking 50 years ago back in the good old days. We're talking 11 years ago. A plague was birthed to humanity in the form of a smartphone. Now, I have a smartphone. I use it. It's handy for emailing. I use it on the road to get in touch with people. I'm not saying technology is your enemy. But I'm saying the technology that you hold has a world of destruction available inside of it. And it fits in our pockets. How close do we wander to our worst temptation? We can't even get away from it. So the, the man is wandering down the road toward the forbidden woman. So first we recognize that there is a forbidden woman, that there is sexual temptation. It's a reality Now, I'm not going to pretend that this message applies equally or might be equally convicting to women. This is written to a young man from a father. I want to be honest and realistic that this is a temptation far worse for men than it is for women, although statistics are showing that that is even changing. But men and young men, this is for us. And you know what? This does not mean that it does not apply to the rest of the church because men who are effective in living wise lives are a blessing to the church and very often become leaders in the church. So we have the woman, the forbidden woman, number two. We have the cost. We have the cost. We're going deeper into the world of sexual temptation and sexual wisdom. The father goes on to share a few analogies and pictures of the person who indulges in this sexual sin. 5, 9 to 11 Verse 14, also in chapter 5, 7, 22, and 23, and 5, 21, and 23. 5, 9 to 11 says this, keep your, or 8 to 11, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Remember the fool just wandered up to her place, wandered up to her street corner. Don't go near her door. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Listen to the warning. What is the cost? It will cost you your honor, he says. It will cost you your influence. It will cost you your influence. Any desire that you have to influence your children will be robbed of you if sexual immorality is your indulgence. We talk about parents and especially fathers. How can I connect with my teenage daughters? How can I, how can I, how can I love my children? And so often fathers are indulging and consuming pornography, depicting women the same age as their daughters. How can we live like this? How can the father have any effect on his family? He says, 
I'm at the brink of ruin in the, in the assembled congregation. I've given my honor and my strength to others. What he's saying is that sexual indulgence will cost you everything that makes you an effective person. It will suck the life out of you. The illusion of secrecy of your sexual sin always eventually collapses and leads to public shame. I'm at the brink of ruin in the assembled congregation, not just in my marriage, but in the house of God, in the assembled congregation. I'm at the brink of utter ruin. It is so costly, my friends. It doesn't... It's not easy to preach this because it, it sounds condemning. But if we understand the warning of sexual indulgence, we will be that much more armed and equipped to teach our children what it means to follow the Lord. Give them the actual tools they will need to protect themselves. He says, others will come and take what is yours. You see that? You will give your years to the merciless. I want to show you Genesis 49. You can turn there if you want. Genesis 49, Joseph, at the end of his life, he gives a blessing to his sons. It's sort of like the final will. What am I going to get? What am I going to get, Dad? Dad, you know, tell me, tell me what's, what's in it for me. Joseph had a firstborn son named Reuben. Firstborn, especially in biblical times, was an incredible honor. You got the preeminent status to carry the family name. You were given the largest portion of the inheritance. You were seen as the rightful heir to your family's dynasty and legacy. Listen to this. Genesis 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength. See how Joseph says that? Jacob, I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. It's Jacob. And he says, you are the first fruits of my strength. We have our oldest children when we're our youngest, right? They're an example of when we are at our greatest strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Wow, what a blessing. Verse four, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled up, defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, I'm not going to get into Reuben's sin, but suffice to say it was sexual sin. And he says, preeminent in power, preeminent in might, you shall be stripped of your honor because of your sexual sin. You will be like a second liner, a bench player now. You have forfeited your right to carry on the family name because of sexual sin. I want to share a quote with you that I learned when I was in university. I listened to, I listened to a preacher named Arturo Azurdia when I was in university. And he has this quote, and I wrote it on my wall in my university. All sins, it sounds harsh, but hear me out. All sins damn, but sexual sins destroy. All sins damn, but sexual sin destroys. What he means by that is that everything we do that's sinful estranges us from God, right? Every evil thought that you have, every word of anger that you speak, all of those things separate us from God. But sexual sin is unique because not only does it separate you from God, but it destroys you. All sins damn, but sexual sin damns and destroys. This is clear in our text. And my blood and my body are consumed, he says. Now, 
This quote from Arturo Rosario was spoken uh, somewhere around 15 years ago. And just this past year, Arturo Rosario, who spoke those words, was discovered to have had an adulterous affair outside of his marriage. He's got kids in their late teens and 20s. Faithful preacher of God's word, a preeminent preacher of God's word, invited to big pastor's conferences every year, fell to sexual indulgence. He has since resigned from his church. He's given up his severance pay. He's given up all benefits from the church. He's removed himself from ministry. And he wrote a letter recognizing that he will never again be an elder in God's church. He will never again open God's word to teach a congregation. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It disqualifies and it destroys. Sexual indulgence is not a balanced relationship. It does not give. It only takes. Real relationships are give and take. You build each other up. You live together. You love each other. Sexual sin is a one-sided relationship where you give your strength, you give your dignity, you give everything you have, and you are left with nothing. You are left with nothing. You are dried up. Now, it says that, our fle- it says that my flesh and my body are consumed. The Bible is saying 3,000 years ago what science is only beginning to prove right now. This is a biological fact. It's not hyperbole to say that sexual sin destroys We saw David express how his body was wasting away from guilt, right? When he slept with Bathsheba. David in Psalm 51 talks about God's hand being heavy on him and his strength being dried up as in midsummer. But we also recognize that biologically speaking, we suffer and we're destroyed by sexual indulgence that goes unchecked. I'm going to tell you a little bit of the science. The brain has two units. Colloquially, referred to as the enjoyment center and as the craving center. There are two different pieces of your brain, which means that the brain's enjoyment center is triggered by the release of chemicals, endorphins, dopamine, things that create pleasure. And our pleasure enjoyment center of our brain receives that pleasure. It's the same type of chemical that's released when we gamble. Okay? When we get notifications on our cell phones, it releases the same chemical. Our enjoyment center is triggered by these chemicals. But we also know that if there is a biological imbalance of these enjoyment chemicals, then our enjoyment center of our brains becomes desensitized. It becomes harder and harder to enjoy that same level of stimulus. But, that's right, it's an overload. But the craving center of the brain is different. It still functions. It's still addicted. And so our addiction levels go up and up and up as our enjoyment goes down and down and down. So we consume more to enjoy less. It's a losing battle. This is, this is biologically proven by established academic journals that our brains become rewired. They become broken when we indulge in sexual sin, especially that of instant gratification, pornography on the internet. I want to be very clear about that. This is our battle in our generation. This is the war that we are fighting. This is the war that we are fighting. The pornography industry understands this. 
I hope that you see that the contextualization of this passage, we're not just talking about the woman on the corner, we're talking about sexual indulgence that's real in our world. The pornography industry understands this because they know the addictive nature of pornography. Have you ever wondered why there is so much free pornography on the internet? You think, how do they make money? Because they know it's addictive. They know that eventually you will cross the line and begin to pay. Did you know that the financial revenues of the pornography industry eclipses Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NHL combined? Did you know that financial revenues from the pornography industry are 10 times that of Hollywood? It's an epidemic under the surface of humanity that we rarely talk about. We rarely address it. We rarely go to war with it. Our technological moment has made this accelerated exponentially. I'll say as much as what once took a lifetime devoted to sexual indulgence and immorality, what once took a lifetime can now be achieved through technology in about 10 years. Children, especially young males who are exposed around age 12, are biologically sexually impotent by age 21. It destroys. Sexual sin destroys. Our body and our blood are dried up. This is the man who, at the end of his life, says, I'm consumed. I have nothing left. My sexual indulgence has destroyed me. It dulls the senses. It leaves a person joyless, unable to function and live regular life, to hold a job, to do normal stuff. It's not just a private enjoyment. It is self-destructive and relationally destructive. Let's look at 7.26. Look at 7.26. The price, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. Not very much. It doesn't cost much to get into this, does it? But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? Man, I want to warn you here. If the prostitute is not someone your wife can actually find and hunt down, yours may be that precious life. If that prostitute is behind a screen and you're the only flesh from which to take a pound of flesh, it's a dangerous thing. It's cheap to get into, but a wife hunts down a precious life because sexual sin is devastating. I'm not advocating violence. I'm not justifying unforgiveness. But I'm saying the cost of indulgence is so, so often way out of your control. So often we want people to react in a certain way. Like, well, it's okay to get really upset, but what if it gets worse? Men and women, when we are addicted to sexual indulgence, we cannot control the outcome of the lives that we affect. It's also self-destructive. Look at that fool from chapter 7 and verse 21. Listen to this. With much seductive speech, she persuades him because he's a fool. He's not on guard. He can be persuaded. With smooth talk, she compels him. Verse 22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, it does not, he does not know 
that it will cost him his life. Let those words sink in. The Bible is not trying to exaggerate the effects of sexual indulgence. The foolish man who is persuaded that sexual indulgence is good for him does not know that it will cost him his life. Like an animal being led to a slaughter, like a stag caught fast in a trap. Many of you are hunters. You know what it, you know what it's like once an animal's trapped? You know all that's left to do is kill it. Till an arrow pierces its liver, that animal will either die of exhaustion, starvation, or execution. So is the man who indulges in sexual sin. It only remains to be seen how he will die. Some of you may maybe have lived or, or live with sexual addiction. And you say, well, I don't see it, Tim. I can manage it. It's under control. It's infrequent. My wife doesn't know, and, and I think I can stop before she finds out. I pray that that's true. <laughs> because the man who follows her is like an ox going to the slaughter. I pray you recognize that. Have you ever read anything so terrifying about your own life? I found these words when I was around 19. By God's grace, these words have guarded me against sexual addiction. Because I see the fool being executed for his lack of sense. And I wonder, how terrified are we of sexual sin? I mean, gosh, there are so many sins that we struggle with, but there's, there's no sin spoken of in this way in the Bible. No other sin. There is no other sin given this much grave language and ridiculously terrifying imagery. There's no other sin that we are so gravely warned against. We fear God and turn away from evil. Or we heard that last week. The wise person fears God and turns away from evil. Friends, there is hope. This is not a message all about the dark side. But do we believe the Bible when it speaks prophetically about what goes down when somebody lives a life of unchecked sexual sin? Do we believe the Bible when it speaks prophetically about this issue? So that's the cost. Number three in our outline is the war and the peace. We're not done with the warning yet. We're not done with the warning yet. Her kill rate is enormous. Her kill rate is enormous. It says that a mighty throng she has laid low. This is in chapter 7. So he says it will cost him his life. And then he goes on to talk about the others who have followed that way. Now, all my sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray onto her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her kill rate is enormous. Sexual indulgence has destroyed untold countless people. A mighty throng she has laid low. 70% of men, 70% of men view pornography monthly. 7 out of 10. 50% 
50% of pastors view pornography regularly. 50%. A mighty throng she has laid low. Pastors and people who think, who think their sin is secret, who think they have it under control, who think that it's a little pet sin that they can enjoy to get through the stress of life. A mighty throng she has laid low. Her slain are innumerable. Use is increasing among women. More women now view pornography on their smartphone than men do. Addiction is increasing among women. Four state governments in the United States have declared pornography a health crisis, meaning that they can devote health care dollars to combating the effects of pornography. Have we yet declared this a crisis in our church? Has the church declared this a crisis? Because it is. One study conducted by a churchman in a church of over 600 people, he said the stats have to be different in the church. He went on to find that 25% of men in the church view it monthly, 44% viewed it in the last six months, and the same number, 70% viewed it in the last year. This is in the church. It's in the church. Our stats are almost identical to the world's. Pornography and forbidden sexual activity. Now, I'm not just saying, oh, if you don't view pornography, but your other sexual sins are alive and well. You're not, this doesn't let anybody off the hook. Forbidden sexual activity, pornography, is crippling this generation. And worse, it's crippling the next generation of men and women who would otherwise be fearless, bold, honorable, and truthful in God's church. Missionaries, preachers, deacons, youth workers, Sunday school teachers, crippled by sexual addiction, crippled, sidelined, sidelined. Let me speak about youth for a minute. Youth, your parents not only can be, but very likely are your best ally. They're your best friend in in fighting sexual temptation. I've seen time and time again where men, young men confess to all their friends. They confess to their youth leader. They confess to everybody but mom and dad, and they cannot get out of their sexual addiction. As soon as mom and dad know, there's freedom. Because it's so awkward, so difficult to let your parents down like that. But you know what? Scriptures talk about confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. Not so that you'll just be shamed. So that you might be healed. God has given us each other to bring freedom to our lives. we can't go through this without looking at the alternative. Look at the contrast of God's sexual plan in 5.15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Let your fountain be blessed. Your sexual expression, let it be blessed. Let it be happy. Let it be good. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. How did that contrast with the forbidden woman? Lips dripping with honey, smooth speech like oil. What about the wife of your youth? As a lovely deer, a graceful doe, 
Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He's saying God's sexual plan is not neutral. It's not just, well, if you have to have sex and you do it in marriage. He's saying, no, no, no. Sex in God's plan is refreshing. It's good. It builds you up. It gives life. Now, if you're single and this is not a reality for you, this does not exclude you from maintaining a refreshing sexual identity, one that is rooted in Christ and modesty. Christ will refresh you in your sexual purity, both in marriage and outside of marriage. Be delighted, be intoxicated. Men, love your wives. Be intoxicated with them. Look at them, enjoy them. Be fulfilled by their love. Don't go out into the streets and waste and give away yourself to the foreigner. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his path. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast. In the cords of his sin, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of great folly, he is led astray. That's how chapter 5 ends. There's grave warning for those who would indulge and who would think lightly of sexual immorality. There's great warning. Friends, this is not just a passage to pull out if you're struggling with sexual sin. Well, better go to Proverbs 5. This is part of God's counsel to his church to live sexually pure lives before it gets bad. This is taught to the youth before he meets the forbidden woman, before he has to lead a family, before he has to lead in the church. So that in the end, he doesn't say, why didn't I listen? This is God's counsel to his church. And so, the church more now than ever has to live as an embodiment and proof that God's sexual design is good, that it's life-giving, it's wonderful, and needs to be restored in our culture. If we want to see humanity thrive, if we want to see our communities and Canada thrive, we have to restore God's sexual plan into the public square. Don't be fooled and deceived by saying it is loving to let somebody go down a path of destruction. Don't be deceived. They call it hate speech to say that homosexuality destroys. It does. Pornography destroys. It's not hate speech. It's love speech. This is how we love our neighbors. We tell them the truth. We don't preach the avoidance of this or that. This sermon is not just about, well, make sure you don't do this and make sure you do that so that you're moral people. This is a sermon to the church so that we would live lives that are prophetic, lives that speak of the truth of God, that we would live wise, culture-impacting lives, that we would embody and demonstrate the goodness of God's creation. The church is God's kingdom, right? It is the beginning of the restoration of creation. So when you look at those inside the church living sexually wise lives, we are demonstrating the restoration of humanity. Imagine the power of your sexual purity in that light. It's prophetically speaking to a world that is lost to sexual indulgence and can't figure out why it's so depressed. Can't figure it out. We thought that 
the LGBTQ community was having high depression and suicide rates because culture was suppressing them. Well, now they're accepted. Let's find out if depression rates sink. They don't and they won't. And in fact, they're getting worse because now they're being affirmed in something that they know in their hearts is wayward. I'm not saying don't love them. I'm not saying don't engage and embrace them and love them with God's truth. But if we don't preach God's design for sexuality, we are not showing them God's word. We're not showing them the way to God. So I ask, will our church be honest with the condition of sexual addiction? Will we heed the wording, the warning of wisdom? Ephesians, one of my favorite verses says, do not participate in the deeds of darkness, but even instead expose them and Christ will shine on you. Friends, expose the deeds of darkness. Men, don't live alone. I'm speaking, assuming there are some of you who might struggle with this. Don't feel condemned. Expose them that Christ will shine on you. Not expose them so that Christ will squash you. He loves you. He wants to shine on you. He wants to shine in and through your life. So expose your sin. Expose it to me. Expose it to another brother. Don't live alone in it. The good news is that Christ has not given you an identity. Christ has given us an identity that is higher than what we struggle with, right? You're not a sexual addict. You're not a homosexual. You're not a whatever. You are in Christ. And you are second and third and fourth those things that you struggle with. You are first a new creation in Christ. Created for good works that you will walk in them. Christ has created and reformed you to be his child. If you still struggle with sin, that does not necessarily make you not his child. It doesn't. He's given you a new identity. So walk in that. Follow the steps that it will take to become pure again. 1 Corinthians 6.10 Paul lists a bunch of sins. You were swindlers. You were immoral. He speaks of the culture that way and he says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. The reality is we all came from something. We all came from some awful, distorted view of humanity. We all came from some kind of sexual addiction or physical addiction or anger addiction. We all loved our sin before Christ, right? We all did. So don't be condemned. Embrace your, your identity in Christ. Sexual purity is not just so that you will live a happy life. It's so that you will reflect and shine the goodness of God on everybody around you. We are to be a people who are refreshed in the truth of God to demonstrate the goodness and beauty of God's creation to a dying world, okay? This is not just to come down and smack everybody on the head with a hammer and say, look how bad it is. It's that we recognize that the world is dying and that our lives can be life-giving to them. So don't struggle alone. You have the spirit in you. Spirit, wisdom, right, in, in Proverbs chapter one says, I call out. If you come to me, I will pour my spirit out on you. Don't be isolated. Don't think that God won't help you. Don't think that God won't make this a piece of victory in your life. He will. He can. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen this afternoon. But it can start this afternoon. Okay? Let's step out in faith that God can and will purify his people for his glory.